So, Mark. Yes? This week's movie has a couple assemblies in it. It's a pretty assembly-heavy movie. Yeah, I mean, it is funny. Like, there's the John Mulaney joke about, like, remember assembly. It is weird how much of your childhood, at least, like, going to school in the United States, is, like, trooping to a gym or an auditorium to sit because, like, they've brought somebody in to, like, demonstrate the magic of yo-yos to you. But that's not a joke. That is a real thing that happened in my school. You had a yo-yo one? That's we so did. fun. It ruled. And then, of course, the next day, everyone had yo-yos at school. Did you have an assembly in elementary school where you signed an abstinence pledge? Or is that no. just a me thing? That's a you thing. So it wasn't an assembly. When I was in high school, there was this married couple. And the, like, husband talked to the guys. And they did it in, like, pretty small groups. I assume they did it through our religion class. So it was, like, me and another class, my class and another class. And, like, the husband talked to us and the wife talked to the girls. I remember nothing except that we got the whole um, men's brains are, like, waffles where everything's segmented. And women's brains are, like, spaghetti where it's all in a pile. And I honestly don't really remember what the point of it was. Except that there was definitely a picture of spaghetti piled on top of a waffle. Uh, uh, uh. That sounds so painful. But tell us about your abstinence assembly. Oh, I don't remember exactly what happened in it, to be honest. Because, you know, as a fourth grader, you don't really understand what's happening. You're like, sure, I'll, I will continue not doing this thing. It was also anti-drug, too. Like, I'll never do drugs contract with no one. Uh, it's not a legally enforceable document, I'm assuming. I don't know. I feel like there's I feel like there's a little bit of trouble when you mix in the no sex no drugs thing because you you might lose a kid who's pro sex but anti drug or the other way around just like well if it's double or nothing you lost me. I'm just surprised they did only the two and didn't roll in a no rock and roll pledge. Well, I mean, we were a pretty cool school. Once a year in elementary school they invited in looking back it is a quintessential Turn your chair around. Let me teach you about poetry. It's essentially <laughs> hip hop. And it was like a full day writer's assembly with someone who came in and was just too cool and like played music and there were games. I learned how to edit. One time, like two years ago, my mom went to a like teacher's workshop on spoken word at the Smithsonian and she got there. And then it turned out that there were only like eight people there and they had to write their own spoken word things and then perform them for the group. And they had to like come up with a performer name and stuff like that. Oh God. And my greatest regret is I'm pretty sure I was invited to that and I did not go and I wish I had seen it. Oh God, that would have been so painful. I would have, I think I might've faked a heart attack. Get me out of here. Now, in high school, the assembly I remember most, of course, is the anti-cyberbullying assembly we had when Formspring became a thing. Did you have Formspring oh, at yeah. your high schools? I was never on it. I totally forgot it existed. It started out normal, as it always does, and then people, instead of writing questions, would write things like, Why are you a fat bitch? And other things of that nature. On the internet? Yeah. No. <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? Uh, so they had to block it at school. And I do feel like it was actually effective because I don't remember people using Formspring that much after. Who in Dear Evan Hansen do you think would be likeliest to have a Formspring account? I feel like it would be probably Evan. 
I think it would be the jocks. The, like, three jocks that are just around always. How big is his school? It is really unclear to me because they have the first day of school assembly where Amanda Stenberg, like, gives her speech that Evan doesn't listen to. And if you look at all the people on that bleachers, that's, like, maybe 100 people. Yeah. It's weirdly small. And I think that's just because they didn't want to hire more extras, but it seems like a very small school. Which is also dumb because, like, this movie had close to a $30 million budget. Like, it was a big play by Universal. It does. Yeah. I guess it changes the movie a little bit that this is an everyone-knows-everyone high school, at least name to face. Again, I I just think a school could be bigger and still meet that level. (laughs) Like, it is yeah. bizarre how few kids are sitting on those bleachers. <laughs> Unless it's supposed to just be the senior class. Maybe. So it could conceivably but I be thought... four times as large. But Caitlin Deaver is there, or is she just there because she's in the band? I mean, that's not Like, what impossible. weird senior class pep rally has the marching band perform at it? You know, it doesn't make sense. But it's not outside the realm of possibility, and it would be a way for younger students to get out of class, so they'd be very excited about it. Well, well, don't don't forget, you're saying marching band and pep rally. She she's a guitarist. So what kind of pep rally music are they playing? It's the jazz at the band. Rally where they make she's... it pretty clear it's the jazz band. <laughs> like she's in the jazz band, but they're walking in in marching band uniforms, like everyone but her. It's odd. And not the oddest choice in this movie. Oh, no. Speaking of weird assemblies, I did get to go to, like, a reverse assembly several times because... Is that where <laughs> you are a student and all of the teachers assemble? Very nearly. My high school did Grandparents' Day, and they would always, like, put on a big show for them. And as part of it, we would always, like, put on, like, some big number from whatever the spring musical had been. And so I would get out of class to go and, like, put on a costume from a year earlier and, like, do a weird thing in a gym for a bunch of grandparents. That sounds awful. Like, trying to reassemble choreography. It was so weird. I guess if there's ever going to be a forgiving audience, it's probably all grandparents. Yeah. So, Tim, did you have any good assembly stories? Um, What came to mind were two, and neither of these are as good as yours but you know if they're half as good it'll add up to something uh one was in fourth grade and we had these dancers that came to my fourth and fifth grade elementary school and so did you see them twice uh no they just came once and i think it was i think it might have been fourth grade uh it was sometime in 2002 obviously because they were very boring dancers i think it was like some kind of hip-hop ballet thing and everyone was you know rolling around and bored to tears but they're like you know you can dance and still be cool you know we're not our lives aren't just obsessed with dance for example one of us just saw the new star trek movie which doing the math would have been star trek nemesis Nemesis, yeah perceived to be like i think arguably the worst star trek film but like at the time you know that's a pg-13 movie you're nine years old you know might as well have said like you know some tarantino film just like whoa Maybe they aren't so uncool after all. <laughs> so this yeah. impressed you. This very Nothing much impressed like me. Nothing like Star Trek to make you seem cool. I also didn't understand kind of how philosophical and intellectual Star Trek was at the time. I thought it was like the more adult Star Wars, which I guess arguably it is. But I thought it was a much a more way. action-packed 
you know, guns and lasers than it actually is. The other assembly was in high school, and I accidentally placed in the poetry creative writing competition at my school <laughs> that was coordinated with a bunch of other local schools. And so someone from the, you know, Vermont poetry writing delegation came to kind of lead our assembly and was kind of giving an intro before we all had to read our poems. And uh, I forget, mine was, it was either about, I wrote two poems and one was about the color green and the other was about comparing life to a big game. And, uh, bef- but the- uh, Tim, just, <laughs> it, just spitball here. Is it easy being green? That was how the poem began. It, that was the point of the poem actually, was that it was easy being green because you blend in with the grass and it was uh, encouraging people not to be green. And this was published <laughs> in some sort of, you know, young writers project publication. Uh, and so I had to read it. What I really want to know is like, did you write that speech from the Green Knight? Uh, I, I did not. Although our, our school mascot was the Green Knights, actually. So we all did read Sir Gowan and the Green Knight in high school, uh, a story which I love. But the worst part of the assembly was like in setting the tone for the assembly, this delegate says, you know, we called for submissions all around the state from young writers. And guess how many submissions we got? And, you know, Vermont probably oh, has a no. high school population of like, you know, 40, 30,000 or something. And so the number was going to be like, you know, 8,000 or something. And someone shouts out like 2 million. And he just <laughs> oh, lowered no. and looked and said, well, now you ruined it. And now I have to, and you know, this is the class clown and stuff. And now, now like an impenetrable divide has been created between the audience and the presentation and I'm on the wrong side of it, you know? So now I have to get up there and read my poem about the big game while not playing any sport at the time. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, Tim, I don't know what you were talking about. This is a great story. (laughs) It's very, very red faced through the whole thing. Another fun assembly I got subjected to in my ninth grade history class, we had to do the Reformation rap where we were divided into groups and we had to rewrite the lyrics of a pop song to be about the break of the Church of England from the Catholic (laughs) Church or the 95 Theses. You could choose. Okay. Number one, you have to tell us what yours was. I... Got put in a group with two popular girls, so I didn't have a lot of say in the matter. I think we did... No, I cannot remember. I repressed it. I tried to immediately forget it, flush it out of my brain. So my follow-up question asking if there was, like, a recording that we could, like, drop some audio in is also a no. Luckily, the teacher did not record, even though he forced us to perform it in front of all of his sections, so it was a pretty significant audience. Uh, I hated it. I probably was super sweaty from nerves, which didn't make things better. And if you're a teacher, William, never make your students sing if they don't want to. I have done a little bit of singing in my class, but not with everyone staring at you. Yeah, it's not a good time. And of course, there are some kids that are like talented singers and are thriving, which makes it even worse for everyone else. Well, I mean, that's part of the problem. Like that's that's misunderstanding the assignment as far as I'm concerned, because something like that, your job is not to sing well. Your job is to sing fun. It's like karaoke. If you sound too good doing karaoke, you're actually just bumming everyone else out. Well, 
Speaking of singing, I feel like it is time to get into this movie because I have a feeling we will all have a lot to say. So welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. How old is Ben Platt? And were he and Amy Adams going to kiss at one point? No, he was going to kiss Julianne Moore. (laughs) Also true. Uh, Also, um, (laughs) is Hollywood romance actually believable? And are these people actually dateable or likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it feels a little predatory just because of who they cast. We will dig in and see what's there. And of course, this week, we are rejoined by our good friend, Tim Lyons, to talk about the 2021 film adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen. Hey, everybody. So, Tim, it's great to have you back on to talk about this strange, (laughs) strange movie. Yeah, I... uh... This movie... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, Sorry, Tim. It's funny because I'd never seen friends uh, who were very involved in theater and love Broadway shows. I, mean, I, love, I myself love Broadway shows. Heard, I don't think there's ever been, maybe there's a handful of films that I've heard such rave reviews about for years after years after years before seeing for the first time. So I was very excited to see this going in. Yeah, I mean, it's the weird thing. And Mark, I think you have seen the show, but I also have not. And there's the weird element for us being DC people because the stage musical Dear Evan Hansen premiered in DC in August of 2015. So like basically everybody I knew saw it then and was like very early on the hype train of this thing rules, except it opened like three weeks after I moved to Florida. So I was like the only person I was talking to regularly who didn't see it. By the time my students were getting into it when it was on Broadway, I was like, I already feel like I missed the boat on this because everyone I know saw it a year ago. So I also like, I knew vaguely what it was about. Like I was not one of the people who thought it was about a gay kid who got bullied, but uh, it's what the movie should be about. I had not even heard a full song from this until I went to see it in theaters. I remember seeing it in theaters and enjoying it in the moment. And then like thinking in a, back to it in a right play after theater. in a play. Yes. When I saw it on stage, Thinking back about it, like, immediately after, I was already disgusted by it, because the plot of this movie is horrifying. And it's really funny seeing all of the articles that are just like, no, sorry, Dear Evan Hansen has always been bad. Because I think some people didn't realize how creepy the plot was until they cast a 28-year-old, and it added an element that already was a little creepy. Yes. His age is the biggest problem with this movie. I honestly think that the film Dear Evan Hansen is pretty darn well made, and it just can't overcome the plot and the disastrous decision to cast Ben Platt. Yeah, this movie made two fundamental mistakes. The source material and the casting of the lead actor. And you know what two of the most important things in the movie are? Yeah. (laughs) The source material and the lead actors. But the thing is, like, uh, otherwise, I think it works. Like, I think, I don't think it works. I think it is well made like especially some of the early musical numbers i think are shot in really fun ways it is the rare film musical that lets you see dancing like without just like doing a bunch of close-ups which a lot of movies are doing these days like the email sequence is a lot of fun and ultimately like i would just get jarred out of it every time ben platt showed up on screen especially in close-up and it's the kind of thing of like even though i knew the arc of the story I kind of kept just thinking to myself, like, well, it can't, it can't be that bad. Like, how would anyone allow that to happen? 
And it wasn't until I got to the Act 1 finale, You Will Be Found, that I was like, oh, this movie is broken because this is supposed to be the rousing big number. It's what the entire trailer was scored to. And I was like, the problem is, like, he wasn't found except when he lied to people. Connor was never found by anybody. But we are supposed to just take this at face value as a nice uplifting song. And I realized the movie was broken there. And the thing that clicked into place is, You Will Be Found is Dear Evan Hansen's This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. (laughs) Which has music by the same people, by Basic and Paul. And This Is Me is the moment where The Greatest Showman fully commits to... The story of P.T. Barnum is a story of empowerment for people who have been left out of society. Oh, that movie. You know, it's funny when you say, you know, this movie is well made. I almost feel like it's too well made. Like, in a sense, in a certain sense, it's too polished. Like, I I saw some tweet or some letterbox post. I forget what it was. But, you know, it was like, here's a list of directors that would have had a better grip and been better equipped to handle this material. Abel Ferreira, John Carpenter, David Lynch, Harmony Corrine, just someone who's, I mean, even Bobcat Goldthwait, right? With World's Greatest Dad. I was going to say, Bobcat Goldthwait made this movie. I mean, as cynical as World's Greatest Dad is, this is the most sincere, anti-cynical movie ever made to the point that I don't think it, like, it loses all character, all purpose. It has no discerning eye at all. It's pretty to look at and polished, and the moves are you know, look good, but it buys into every scene. It buys into you will be found so much that I don't think it understands that there's anything fake about what's going on. It forgets for a moment that there's any fraud underneath the surface. Absolutely. And what's astounding, and Mark, maybe you can speak to this better because you're the only one on the show here who has seen the play. From what I have read about the play, incredibly, Evan has more consequences in the movie. Yes. It is not a great ending in the play or a great play because it is about a high schooler committing emotional terrorism on a family. (laughs) And just to be clear, for anyone who has made it this far and doesn't know the plot of Dear Evan Hansen, we'll talk about it a little bit. The long and the short of it is 28-year-old Ben Platt plays teenager Evan Hansen who has no friends and has vaguely defined mental health issues he is quintessential high school movie mentally ill yes. and his therapist assigns him to write letters to himself to help him build self-confidence and one day he's writing one when it's picked up by the mean kid connor who then like that day commits suicide with that letter still in his pocket so people confuse evan's letter to himself with a suicide note that this kid connor wrote addressed to Evan. Connor's family is really into it because they're like, oh my gosh, Connor had friends. We didn't know he had friends. Let's talk to this Evan kid. And so then Evan, he basically like feels it's too awkward with this family who wants to make a connection to their dead son. So he just pretends to have actually been friends and allows it to snowball. They build up more and more lies until it's eventually revealed. And ultimately the thing is like for this story to ever work, which is a tall order, especially if you want to redeem him as much as the stage show seems to, it really needs to hang on how much of a kid this character is. And it's like a kid who gets in over his head, does something he thinks is nice and it all goes wrong. And the problem is it is hard to feel that when you are watching someone who is 
so much of an adult man that when he's in a room with Caitlin Deaver, who is like 25, you're like, get this child away. He looks older in this movie than he does in real life. Right. It's I don't know what they did. Part of it is just like he's trying to look younger. So he's like hunching over all the time. But that makes him look like an old man. Like Nosferatu, as was pointed out, or like alternately like a squirrel face Count Chocula. Look, I love the Irishman, but it's like that. Like, it's an old man. Like, you get a vibe of old man pretending to be young. And they definitely did not. I I mean, like you're pointing out, the problem is that they didn't. um, Not only is he too old. But no one else is too old. If everyone were just old, you'd sort of forget about it with some right, very that simple suit. If it's a, if it's a grease situation, and that's the thing where like he makes everyone else look younger. Where like when he's on screen with Caitlyn Deaver, I'm like she is a child, and then when she's alone, I'm like oh yeah, Caitlyn Deaver clearly not in high school. As soon as he's back, I'm like whoa, whoa, we got some laws to deal with here. <laughs> he looks closer in age to Caitlyn Deaver's parents in the movie than to Caitlyn Deaver herself. Whenever he's sitting with adults, it looks like he's talking to peers. Oh my gosh, I mean, we made a joke about this, but there is this scene where after Julianne Moore's song, I think, like, he leans in, and they're hugging, and I swear it looked like they were about to kiss. And, like, I know intellectually that's not going to happen in the movie, but it's what it looks like. I saw the movie in a pretty crowded theater, and everyone had a weird reaction to that moment. When Amy Adams put the tie around his neck... My theater had the same reaction of being skeeved out. I want to hear about your audiences that you saw this with. Were they into it? Were they I think broadly quiet yes. emotionally? Yeah. So I saw it with my fiance and we were there being like, this is gonna be a train wreck. But it was a pretty crowded theater for a pretty late showing on a Thursday night. And yeah, I think like there I mean, the thing is like there were a lot of groups. There was definitely a big group of college kids and I could never quite get a read on how they were feeling about it. I think they were into some of it but also recognized it for what it was. But there was like a family with like kids in the row with me and I was like, "Why why are they here?" <laughs> and there were old people on my other side and I assume they're like old people who saw the show at the Kennedy Center and were excited to see it again. We had about 20 people at my theater and everyone was pretty quiet during the whole thing. There were definitely some tears during parts. The one part that no one bought and everyone cracked up at was the scene. And I guess we should lay some context for that. You will be found during this climactic number that Will has mentioned already. The speech that Evan Hansen gives turns into a song that he gives on stage at the school assembly. The camera then turns to a bunch of YouTube videos of people looking at their, you know, their laptop camera. And, you know, there's one on screen, then there's three, then there's 10, then there's 100. And soon there's too many to be individually pointed out. And they all join together into a photo mosaic. And that photo mosaic all melds in together into a picture of Connor Murphy, the teenage boy who has taken his life. And it turns out it's a picture of him on his computer that his dad is sitting at work and staring at. And it's just such a bizarre cut that I don't. I don't think you have a soul if you don't laugh out loud at that scene. It is just bizarre and bananas. That's the scene where I I actually rewatched World's Greatest Dad ahead of this just to jog my memory of that movie. And that like images coming together is when I really wished the photo of Connor were as dumb as the photo that they constantly use of the dead son in World's Greatest Dad. <laughs> I really enjoyed the audience I saw this movie with. Because it was pretty full, and it wasn't like people were going in to make fun of the movie. But 
I think the thing that really set it off is when he does the Naruto run, a few people start laughing, and then the whole audience starts laughing, and then anytime they have a close-up of his face, everyone just <laughs> involuntarily starts laughing. And so it truly, the most emotional moments in the movie, all of a sudden the whole audience is just laughing and can't control it. And at one point there was something so awkward, I don't even remember which moment, but I couldn't look at the screen and I turned away to the side and the people a few seats down from me, I noticed like pointed at me and were like, look, he can't even look because they felt the same way. <laughs> and I think that's all getting at like, I, I really do believe like beyond the source material, which like fine, you've, you're kind of stuck with it when you decide to make this movie. Like casting Ben Platt is just such a problem in part because I kind of get how a lot of the stuff that he's doing works on stage where you have people like sitting in the balconies and they need to get a sense of who this character is. But when you put him in a close-up, and it feels like he's doing the same level of business, you're like, who is this 30-year-old space alien? It's so weird what he does. You know, every every twitch, every weird movement, his eyebrows are all over the place. He's wincing. Which I believe works on shot. stage. He's like a I know I'm, we referenced Dayman Nightman in the last podcast. He's like the baby boy going the ooh, <laughs> ah, with everything. And and what's what's worse than that is not only is it it just it's acting for the stage despite being on screen, but that and the Naruto run. The movie sort of plays fast and loose, but kind of implies that these are just kind of outputs of his anxiety. This is what people with anxiety do. And we have to have empathy for such people as if it's just a natural outgrowth. All right, so we have to talk about, like, the mental health angle of all this, which, like, there's a certain kind of, like, trendy Tumblr mental healthness to this movie, where, you're right, Tim, there's the one of, like, all the weird tics, but this movie also has the, like, very, like, 2015-ish, you know, mental health is a problem that ultimately can be solved if enough people are nice to this person, which is just kind of annoying and feels, feels kind of absurd in the movie. Their depiction of his medicine usage is also just nuts. It is weird. Because what pills is he popping constantly? Is he taking, like, is he a clonopin addict? What are those supposed to be? Is he just popping Valiums at school? That's the uh, Dear Evan Hansen next to normal crossover sequence. He takes, like, four full anxiety pills before noon on the first day. What's strange about it is... You know, we, we've talked about this is like the 20th reference to World's Greatest Dad, but World's Greatest Dad shows that, you know, what Robin Williams, the father does in creating this lie about the person who's died is done as kind of a product of and at the crossroads of well-meaning in meaning to preserve someone's legacy and provide peace and as egomania, as an opportunity to lift himself up. There's absolutely no need to make this also he does this because he has anxiety. Like what he does, I think is clearly wrong, but also is an understandable human impulse to comfort this family rather than being, as the movie tries to paint it as, just a, you know, a bizarre outburst only explainable by a mental health problem. Right. World's Greatest Dad has the confidence to say like, this is a horrible thing from the drop. You know, I mean, early, like you said, early on, it's preserving dignity, but then, like, clearly, like, as soon as he's doing it for himself, the movie says this is a bad thing. Now, that makes World's Greatest Dad a deeply unpleasant and uncomfortable movie to watch, but it's at least more honest than what we got here. 
I feel like you could make a musical and add most of these songs about someone whose actual friend dies without the emotional terrorism element and still get most of the plot or not plot, but most of the themes that you're trying to include, like without the lie. Obviously, some things would have to be changed, but overall, I think you could tell a good story. Yeah, I I also don't quite know what this movie's theme was. I mean, it's an incredibly moralistic Tim, movie. It's, you will be found. <laughs> it's hitting you over the head with this is an important movie and there's an important message, and I I just don't yeah, you're know gonna be found. what the message was or what, if the movie knew what it was. I mean, the the fact that you will be found is built on just a, a mountain of lies makes me think that I have to think the movie knows that as well. And Stephen Chbosky knows that and the writers know that and there has to be something deeper. And so the only maybe two coherent themes that you could pull out of it is one, this is about a kid with depression and anxiety and he learns to accept the person that those things have made him. And it's an inspirational tale and he falls through. So yes, he... He feels guilty and he apologizes, but ultimately he moves on. So the message is, you know, you can't let that stuff get you down. And then the other possible lesson is appreciate the people in your life. And the one real person in his life is his mother. And that is a meaningful lesson. But I I think the problem with both of those is that both of those messages ultimately render a teenage suicide and its effect on that teenager's family just nothing more than a plot device for someone else's personal growth. Right, Connor is fridged for Evan. I mean, that's just very true. Connor's whole family is barely treated as any, like, people outside of Evan Hansen's story, which is kind of a shame because some of the moments that I thought were well done in this movie is where Evan isn't on screen, and it's just the family having their time processing the death of their child. I mean, I think all three of them are great, and that's part of, like, what's so weird for me about this movie. Like, I I think, like, Caitlin Deaver is great, I, I really like Danny Pino as Larry. Hiram Lodge um, Murphy. And I think Amy Adams is really good. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I've met all of those people. You've met Amy Adams? No, but you know what I mean. Like, you've met a Cynthia, and I think she captured that person well. Another moment that made me laugh, which the movie did not mean, is when they walk into Zoe's bedroom for the first time, and they have a snail mail poster on the wall as the sign of, like, she's not, like, other girls. She's a cool girl. And I laughed because I was like, oh, god damn it. Of course <laughs> they picked, like, the artist of my most played song on Spotify. <laughs> Look, Mark, you're, you're just not like other girls. I, I hated to be reduced that way. And when you see her like that, Mark, you've been found. God damn it. I thought that the reason we were doing this is because it was the same day theater streaming release (laughs) and then when will told me i'd have to watch this at theaters i got so mad right here's the thing i'm going to the theater like twice a week like that's a much higher bar for you i can't pause it i can't scream i can't look at my phone when it gets too painful to look at the screen at one point i was hoping i'd have to go to the bathroom so i'd have a reason to leave the theater but i couldn't bring myself i mean i think you're allowed to scream during this Mark, you were not able to say hashtag you're in the club. Okay. I don't even remember what this is from, and it was not that long ago. <laughs> it was like three weeks ago. Ugh. I 
cannot believe I have seen Dear Evan Hansen in theaters. And I texted my friend who's also a musical person because I wanted to complain about the movie. And she just goes, why on earth would you watch that in theaters? (laughs) And the thing is, like, people have not. Like, I think it might have something of a tale, not on the level of The Greatest Showman, but it opened to a downright pathetic, like, $7 million in second place. And, like, you know, it's the pandemic. The box office is not what it was. But it really underperformed when you take into the fact that, like, this was Universal's big Oscar play for this year. Like, this is what they were counting on to be, like, their big awards thing. And on paper, that makes sense. We're in this, I feel like we're in this weird window post Les Miserables and even more post Chicago where, like, most years you can count on at least one studio to put out a big musical adaptation as their move. This year, there's weirdly a lot of them because Warner Brothers has In the Heights. Fox has West Side Story coming out. Netflix has Tick, Tick, Boom, which is actually written by the same guy who wrote the screenplay for this. Like, it's a boom year for musicals somehow. I feel like, I don't know why, and maybe you guys can, but I feel like the zeitgeist was more ready to receive something like this like two or three years ago than now. Definitely. Well, I mean, you can tell based off of the success of the play. And I think some of the reason that the movie is also just doing poorly as compared to the musical is because the general cultural understanding of things like mental health have evolved. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I was going to like theorize about like post pandemic, just like who wants to put up with this kind of nonsense? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I feel like our patience for crap has gone down, but also like in the Heights also really underperformed. And I think that's a really wonderful movie. That was also... It was much was earlier. A, like, much people earlier. had not built up the movie-going habit as much. I'll yeah. be interested to see how West Side Story does. I think that it's still... The box office is still going to be funky in terms of numbers, but this movie just straight up underperformed. Like, oh, yes. I think if this movie came out in a normal time, it would also do very poorly. Because I also think every critic went into it with a more sour view. At least critics our age, because based off of the discourse online, it's a very strong anti-Dear Evan Hansen sentiment. Let me put it this at way. At large. I actually, for the first time in my life, saw three movies in theaters this weekend. I saw... A great weekend. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen. I saw The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos movie. And I saw Venom Let There Be Carnage. <laughs> And okay, I did far, a back-to-back double feature of this with Venom. By far, the least crowded and least receptive of the audiences, even you know per viewer, which is much lower, was Dear Evan Hansen. And I don't think the appetite is as lopsided in favor of Goop Monster fighting Goop Monster and uh, you know Italian caricatures uh, three years ago as it would be now. That's interesting. So you think you think Dear Evan Hansen would have performed worse three years ago? No, no, I think there is uh, the opposite. Oh, okay. I sure. think I actually, I kind of buy the post-pandemic thing of like the, you know, we're we're pretending, you know, everything is, uh, I don't know how to quite to put this, but there's like a little bit of like the, almost like the suburban NUI um, romanticizing it about this film that you see in, you know, kind of that uh, late 90s, early 2000s and, you know, American Beauty and Almost Famous in Dear Evan yes. Hansen and kind of yes. romanticizing it that, you know, just isn't present in those other two kind of, you know, mindless blockbusters. That is a great point. This movie ultimately 
aspires to a McMansion. Oh my god, their house is so ugly. Look, we have seen uglier houses. The pool boy nightmare house was worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but Will... Pool Boy Nightmare was a Lifetime Movie Network movie. It was, it was made for like $7. <laughs> and this movie was made for $30 million. Yeah. I mean, Universal's going to be okay. They've got Belfast opening in a month, and that's like probably going to win Best Picture. I started reading a book about the Troubles, and I couldn't finish it because I got too depressed and too, like, angry. Well, if you'd like it to be a little more cheerful and to see Jamie Dornan sing, Belfast is out in about a month. Yeah, I saw the trailer for that for the first time and I was very thrown because I just don't know. Obviously, people experience happiness in the worst of situations. But Britain was sending in death squads to Belfast at this time. The British government was just murdering civilians in their bed for decades. I mean, it's Kenneth Branagh's Roma is what it is. It's Kenneth Branagh making a black and white film clearly inspired by his childhood. But because it's Branagh, it's a little more cheerful. Yes. And I mean, Roma wasn't even that depressing. No. But this is just, I like, I don't know. It's too soon after having read that book, I think. What's funny is that, like, that's going to come out and Branagh, like, might win an Oscar for it. And Death of the Nile is still the most cursed movie that will never be released. (laughs) I cannot handle the fact that the first one made so much money to this day. But here's the thing, too, is, like, it's not just that Army Hammer is, by all accounts, the lead of that movie. One of the, like, biggest supporting roles is Letitia Wright. Like, the chief anti-vaxxer. Oh, my God. That, oh, that's so unfortunate. Yeah, there was this piece in one of the trades this week, as we record, about how, like, people are getting pissed off on the Black Panther 2 set because she keeps spouting anti-vax stuff. Yikes. See, that actually, that makes more sense to me. I guess we're, we're completely off the, uh, <laughs> we, we've gone off script, but it, yeah, this movie I, done I that. remember, like, the first time I saw, like, Letitia write some, you know, COVID like, you know, thing that one shouldn't say that dovetails with, uh, or, you know, departs from conventional science understandings. I'm like, just as a business decision, why would you say this? Like, you know, even if you really believe this, you must have enough, like, rationality to think, I, I got to keep this to myself. There are tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. But if you're a true believer, then that's it. It's so easy to be one of those people clumsily being like, I don't want to talk about it. Right. I'm just here to talk about Black Panther and Chadwick Boseman's legacy. Boom. And we all know what that means, but it's 100% easier to not say things. Uh, remember very early on when Vanessa Hudgens came out as like a COVID truther? Yes, you bring it up on this podcast frequently. <laughs> <laughs> it's seared into my brain. She has since apologized, I believe. Yes, she has. Look, we all know the best celebrity thing during covid was when january jones filmed a video of herself having her Mad Men doll and her x-men doll insult each other and then fight oh man i didn't even see that i mean it's no imagined video but it's still up <laughs> that was like two weeks in that's one of my favorite things every time someone points that out I think my favorite was in, it was like March or April 2020, and the Josh Gad self-facing camera video where he's crying and he's saying, it's okay to cry, it's okay, it's okay. That video where he looked like Marco Rubio complaining about socialism. (laughs) (laughs) 
The celebrities need to be stopped. Nothing has brought that home like the pandemic. Josh Gad taught me it was okay to be weird and to cry. (laughs) Well, this is actually a good topic because, of course, Dear Evan Hansen is the first movie we're covering on this podcast that shot during COVID. And, you know, it's the unfortunate thing of if it had been forced to delay, we would have been saved from the biggest issue because Ben Platt had said that if COVID protocols delayed production too much, he would have said no because he would have just gotten too old. And I'm like, buddy, like, if the question is a matter of six months, you're already too old. Yeah, it's the frog boiling in the pot. You know, it's always going to be, well, it's just around the corner. Yeah. One thing, I was reading a Vanity Fair piece from when the trailer first came out. And in it, Steven Schwosky flat out said, I see the purpose of this movie as capturing Ben Platt's performance, which I think is amazing. And so, like, there was never any question that we were casting Ben Platt. And I'm just like, there are other ways to capture that performance. You know, last year, we all got to watch Hamilton on Broadway. And I know by the time Steven Schwosky was brought on board, we were past the point of capturing Ben Platt's performance in that particular way. But it just feels like there was something you could have done besides spending $30 million in this particular way. Also, he's a whiny, anxious high school kid. This isn't De Niro in Raging Bull. This isn't Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice. There's a million actors that can play that part. Hire a teenager. But Will, none of their dads are the producer of the movie. Yes, I mean, that is the thing. Mark Platt is a major Hollywood and Broadway producer. Have you read Ben Platt's response to the nepotism charge? It makes no sense. It's very funny, but you should tell us about it so our listeners can hear. I don't even understand his point. I think his point is that I'm so good in this movie that it can't have been nepotism. Uh, here. I like this line. Were I not to do the movie, it probably wouldn't get made. And yeah, that's because your dad paid for the movie so you could be in it. I think that's going a little far. I mean, I know this musical was a massive hit. It won six Tony Awards. Yeah, I think that's going a little far from Ben to say that if he wasn't in it, this movie wouldn't be made. Yes, I think that's probably true. I think if they had really wanted to, they could have cast like a 15 year old because frankly, like, I believe Ben Platt was great on stage. I have no trouble believing that. But it's not like he's a name bringing people into the movie theater. But he likes to think he is from all of his Ryan Murphy work. His last major role was still playing a high schooler in The Politician. That's true. And I feel like we had Ben Platt as too old to play high school when The Politician came out. Yeah, and somehow he still looked younger in The Politician. I mean, he was younger. But not that much younger. Like two years. I mean, part of it is like, you know, it's not just that he's too old. But there are, one, there's younger looking people his age. But two, it's it's not just that he's playing a high schooler. I mean, he, you know, Paul Walker was 26 when he, you know, played the football player in varsity blues but it's supposed to be about his youth if anything you want to cast too young you want a kid who looks like he's in eighth grade it only works if he's young and then it maybe still doesn't work it still doesn't work because the movie does not take his misbehavior seriously enough yeah i think we should talk about the romance though yeah i think it's time to get into the points so every week we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points to help us focus on The only part of the movie that we're interested in, I said, 50 minutes into this record. (laughs) So, Tim, as our guest, you are in charge of guiding us through the romance of Dear Evan Hansen. All right. So I do have five points laid out. I will create a little context for what goes on before the first point. So the context is we have this high schooler, Dear Evan Hansen. He's a senior. 
He has no friends. His name his name is Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> he is uh he's the dearest Evan Hansen. Uh he has one family friend who refuses to be actual friends with him and he has a crush on a young I believe sophomore named Zoe Murphy. Played by the great Caitlin Deaver from uh Last Man Standing at Booksmart, The Path. Yeah. No, not The Path, The Tale. She's she's great. No notes for her. Zoe has an older brother named Connor who's he's a misfit he's kind of like uh evan he doesn't fit in either but he's mean and one day evan has a note printed out will's already given most of this but connor wrongly believes that evan is making fun of him by writing when evan wrote a note to himself connor believes that the note was meant to appear to be from him angrily takes the note and instead of destroying it burning it keeps it in his pocket and never removes it again then one uh, takes his own life, and soon afterward, his parents discover what's happened and discover the note, wrongly believe Evan to be Connor's best friend, which the note says he is. And the confirming evidence is that Connor, at one point, kind of weirdly insisted on signing Evan's cast. Yeah, that's clunky. You don't really get it. At least to me, it felt like I had no reason why he did it. It's a weird, it, weird Yes, moment. it's it's. Uh, it, it's kind of nice that it happens because it's the first of many contrivances that happen in this movie. So it kind of just sets the tone for those. So the first point is that Connor's family invites Evan over to dinner. And this is really the first time, I guess they do interact once. Zoe sees Connor yell at Evan when Connor uh, wrongly believes Evan's been laughing at him. Zoe says, are you okay? Evan Naruto runs away. But point one is Evan goes over for dinner. All we see is sky for forever. We let the world pass by for forever. Feels like we could go on for forever this way. Two friends on a perfect day. And at this dinner, this is Evan's really first opportunity to clear up the whole thing. He, he doesn't really have a chance before to explain away. You know, I think any normal person would be a little shocked and thrown off by the circumstances of, uh, you know, this your classmate's parents wrongly believing that you're his you were his best friend. But over at dinner, the circumstances are clearly laid out for him to say that he is uh, he actually really didn't know Connor at all. And this is a misunderstanding and that he wishes them well. It would, it be, would very be very, easy. very easy. Not only would it be easy, but actually the movie sets up that what this family needs right now is closure. For Evan just to say, I didn't know him that well. He really only talked to me twice and uh, was not nice to me either time. Right. That's the thing with all these is like, and this, Mark, this is what you were talking about. Evan unquestionably makes the whole thing worse for them. Yes. Like several times over. Because he like you, he brings them joy only to take it away. And, like, bring them completely back to zero or below where they started. It would be an interesting movie that made the the big moral dilemma whether he should knock down the house of cards and reveal everything. Just like, you know, I've made them happy through this lie. A movie that starts in media res starts after the dinner. And he's debating whether he should tell them that it was a lie. And the whole movie is based on that. I think that would be an interesting approach. I think that is an interesting idea. It would require Evan to have any real self-awareness. Like, he never seems to have any sense that what he has done is wrong throughout all of this. Like, he doesn't struggle with doing this. 
in part because he immediately benefits from it and is just happy to have the benefit. Yeah, there's a little bit of waffling at the beginning. And yes, he goes into the dinner intending to tell them the truth. But because, you know, he's mentally ill, he gets too anxious and can't tell them. The other wrinkle, of course, is that even from the drop, he has a crush on Zoe, on Caitlin Deaver. Which is so weird. Why is he so in love with the sophomore he's never talked to? That's kind of weird, yeah. But also, like, there's a degree to which teenagers are weird with romance that I will let slide. Yeah, but the fact, like, where would they have met? He's only in love with her just through watching her from a distance because they're not going to be in classes together because she's a sophomore. He's not in the jazz band. Well, he runs the AV club, it, it seems. He's, through his apparent AV club involvement, would see her at a bunch of yeah, he's the uh, watcher. ensemble, jazz ensemble <laughs> events, is what I speculated. So he saw her all last year and presumably talked about her to his you know, family friend buddy who also is in the AV club with him. I also ran the sound at high school assemblies and pep rallies to avoid being involved. So at this dinner, the point one here is essentially his first overtures at making himself out to be Connor's friend. So not only does he say, yeah, I knew him and he was my friend, but he bursts into song, uh, the song called uh, For Forever. Uh, and he mentions things that he and Connor talked about. They apparently used to go on walks together, he claims. He said that they had a dream to bike the Appalachian Trail, which is something that one cannot do. Uh, it is a hiking trail, not a biking trail. But I suppose that Evan Hansen, the character, may have made that mistake, even if the script is aware of it. Um, yeah, I think that's plausible down- as he's making up lies. <laughs> I wrote down two lines word for word. Um, Connor looked at me and smiled that way he always did. And also mentions that Connor, looking at a tree, said he, quote, wanted to see what the world would look like from up there, which really should be, you know, alarm bells should be going off in the family's head is this doesn't sound like our son. You know, it's one thing to say he was a different person when we weren't around. He was a little lively or a little more outgoing, had interests we didn't know about. But this is just this happy-go-lucky kid who likes to run through the trees. Especially a kid who was recently out of rehab and had disappeared for days at a time. This is where I think, at first at least, I kind of get what's going on. Because Caitlin Deaver, Zoe, is suspicious at that point where she's like, this doesn't make any sense. And the one who's buying in hook, line, and sinker is Amy Adams, who is just like desperate to have good memories of her son. Like, I kind of get what's going on there. I think, like, if she were thinking about this all rationally, then, yes, she'd be like, well, that this is a bridge too far. But I think the whole point of her at that point is that she's not. Yeah. Like, that I get. Yeah. I think Caitlin Deaver is convinced pretty easily. But Amy Adams in that moment, I get. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, in looking at this at a romantic, I think you can, you know, certainly the more plausible is, yeah, he was always kind of a, you know, down in the dumps whenever we'd hang out. But the the story you want to believe more, which might push you toward believing it, uh, is that I brought out the best in him. And you can certainly see why Caitlin Deaver's character, Zoe, who has nothing but, pretty much nothing but terrible memories of her brother, wants to believe that there was this other side of him. Yes, her abusive, violent brother. Right. And the fact that she's seeing, you know, her own mom is is hurting and that this is making her happy i think it's it's easier for her to believe that that's based on truth than a lie so step two is evan goes home 
And uh, soon after, I guess a few days after, a week after, uh, not totally clear, but Evan gets a text from Zoe that says, do you want to come over? My mom made a gluten-free apple pie. Um, And Evan comes over. It's just the two of them hanging out. And soon after, Zoe's parents come over and it becomes clear that they're very open to keeping Evan around in their life. He seems to, you know, be affable. He likes telling them fake, but unbeknownst to them, uh, stories about Connor and him. Yeah, we call um, those lies. Right. And Evan sings a song to Zoe called If I Could Tell Her, because Zoe is skeptical of one specific line in the letter that Evan wrote that she believes Connor wrote that said, Zoe and I, something along the lines of, she doesn't really know me and I can't talk to her. And Evan tries to explain that line by saying, well, actually, there were things that he wanted to tell you, but just couldn't bring himself to. And these things in which he uh, enumerates in the song, if I could tell her, are things that I can't imagine any brother ever saying to any sister. If I could tell her, tell her everything I see. If I could tell her how she hates everything to me. But we're a million worlds apart. And I don't know how I would even start. If I could tell her. There are things about her eyes looking nice, her hair looking nice, and her having a, a cool attitude that I can't... I guess the movie leaves a little ambiguous. It's not clear how much Zoe realizes this is actually Evan hitting on her and how much she just thinks that it's uh, Evan just purely reciting the things that Connor told him. I felt like it was a mix of both. Like, clearly from the drop, it's supposed to be what Connor wrote. I do feel like by the end, she got that at least the telling was flirty. Yeah. Also, I I do want to mention in this, one of the sequences I really enjoyed was the Sincerely Me sequence, which was like the fake email writing. And I think in particular, Colton Ryan, who plays Connor, did a fantastic job of just like shifting tones of performance throughout that. That's probably the most fun I had watching the movie. I really think the movie, that's one direction the movie could have taken. Just he's having fun with it for the first hour. And then all of a sudden the real consequences start hitting. And I think that would be a very different movie if they kept up that tone for a little bit after that. But instead, the consequences are entirely contrived. The consequences are like Amanda Stenberg, the girl who cares so much about mental health that like she gets a new song about it, then publishes a suicide note on Instagram. Right. And I guess I guess we'll get to that because that's that's my fourth point. Um, the third point is you will be found slash the relationship starting. And And I know they'll take you home Even when the dark comes crashing through When you need a friend to carry you And when you're broken on the ground You will be found So let the sun come streaming in Cause you'll reach up and you'll rise again Lift your head and look around Evan Hansen gets uh, involved with this student group uh, that wants to put on a school assembly, like we talked about at the beginning. Uh, He has a speech prepared. He drops his notes. It's falling apart. He's stumbling over his words. 
And then he starts singing this song, You Will Be Found. It inspires the school. It inspires the world, apparently, because it goes viral. I love that, like, the linchpin of this story is an Upworthy poster. (laughs) I didn't notice that it was Upworthy. I mean, they don't say it, but that's what it is. Like, yeah, come on. You know, this kid gave a speech. You won't believe what happened next. Like, Part of the reason it probably hit home more in, you know, the early 2010s than it does in 2021. Yeah. I used to have a, a Chrome plugin called Downworthy that <laughs> just like undid those kinds of headlines. So it would be like, it would change titles to like, you will definitely believe what happens next. <laughs> I also had one called Florida Man that changed all references to Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio to just Florida Man. Love it. So after you will be found, it clearly brings Zoe and Evan closer together. She comes over to his house. She goes up to his bedroom. A perilous feeling scene as you watch this old man lure (laughs) a child into his bedroom. (laughs) To be fair, she definitely is taking the lead in this situation. She suggests the bedroom. Nonetheless, as the adult in this situation, it is his (laughs) job to act responsibly. As the babysitter. So this is probably, in terms of the romance, this is the most pivotal scene in the film. Because before this, they're clearly just... Maybe not clearly just friends, but there's really not much romantic going on other than his song to her. And then which this is flirty. Is the like there's they... a montage in there with like them on the roller coaster and it's like prom and stuff. Like it's sort but that's of after implies... this scene. That's after this. Yes. So this is the climactic scene where they go mm-hmm. from friends to more than friends. Oh, I thought yeah, that was this earlier. is this is like right before they go to prom together. Okay. This is the the scene that kicks off that montage. And Evan wants to say, you know, at this point, he's involved with the theater group. And so he's telling Zoe or not the theater group, the student group dedicated to mental health. And it's called the Connor Project. And so he's updating Zoe because this is how he makes conversation. And she says, you know, I, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing with the project, but I just I want to talk about something else. I don't want this to take over my life. And also, like the two of us can have things to talk about with one another besides this. Right. And at this point, she says. And I like talking with you. And in fact, I like you because, and I wrote this down. She says, I like you because dot, dot, dot. She then trails off and starts singing about how she likes that they can talk about things other than, you know, Connor. But at this point, we've seen them talk about nothing except Connor. And she has specifically mentioned that they've only talked about Connor. She also has the opportunity to say what possible positive traits Evan Hansen says by saying, I like you because, and does not complete that sentence. (laughs) And I just kept thinking, what positive qualities does this character have? Please tell us. Please tell us what we've missed off screen. Nothing. She likes him because his hair is actually not a wig, as Vulture (laughs) had to issue a correction for. She likes him because of his receding hairline. Which I know I'm, you know, can't really make jokes about myself, except that I make no claims to being a high schooler. And just to be clear, Ben Platt and I are within a month of each other's age, and I've been teaching high school for seven years. (laughs) (laughs) That really puts it in perspective. So at this point, um, you know, the two of them sing a duet, and then it's off to the races. They're on Ferris wheels together, laughing. They go to the school dance, which may or may not be prom together, but they're very well dressed for it, so it may very well be prom. It's hard to tell what time of year it is at any point in this movie. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It starts on the first day of school, but yeah, it's not really clear how much time elapses. He skips dinner with his mom, 
which is big because earlier she, a nurse who works late, had been skipping dinner with him. Yes, but also the dinner is always Taco Tuesday, and in a post-Lego movie world, you gotta be a little suspicious of Taco Tuesday. (laughs) He's also, depending on your point of view, more or less importantly, skipping the meetings of the Connor Project Student Club, uh, which he's on the board of. Um, And so that's, I I think that's, that's one thing, you know, talking about the plausibility of this romance, that he's not only spending a lot of time with Zoe, but that he's... He's doing it at the expense of not seeing his mom once a week when he's clearly showed that he's values these meals. Like he can't take an hour and a half out of seeing her, you know, seeing his girlfriend to have dinner with his mom or assuming, you know, this club probably does not meet more than once a week. Just I don't know. Amanda Stenberg is intense. That's true. But she does have a lot of other clubs she has to deal with. He does say Evan says you're president of 100 clubs. So. If we divide, you know, 168 hours in a week divided by 100, that's only 1.68 hours she could possibly spend. So it's not, you know, skipping ahead to the plausibility. We don't see why he would skip these things just to spend time with one person. I also don't really feel like I have any idea what they do together. Yes. I think they spend a lot of time with her parents. Like, a lot of time with her parents. Because they offer him, like... $200,000. I think, yeah, that is, I guess that's point three and a half. Zoe's parents, who are, there is certainly a class theme to this movie. Zoe's parents, the Murphys, are much better off than uh, Evan and his mom. They're the Hansons. The Hansons. And the Murphys, who had saved money for Connor to go to college, offer Evan that money as a scholarship to whatever school he wants to go to. Evan indicates earlier in the film to Zoe that he probably will not be able to pay for college realistically, even with a a small scholarship that he could plausibly get. Zoe apparently tells her parents, unbeknownst to Evan, and the scholarship offering happens at a, I guess, a, a gathering of the two families with Evan, his mom, and the Murphy parents and Zoe. This is a sequence that is like, very believably awkward in the thing of like, this actually is a situation where I believe pretty much all the pieces of it. And it's just the last one to me that is like clearly wrong. Like it makes sense to me that like Evan would say that to Zoe. And it makes sense when you're thinking about high schoolers, especially a sophomore, that Zoe would say that to her parents. What's wrong is when the parents like make an event out of offering this money when they should have had a one-on-one conversation with Julianne Moore. Right. Yeah. Who is, you know, I can... I can understand, you know, it's it's obviously wrong. I can understand them doing it in this way. Um, oh yes, I can. Of course. I can understand, you know, Julianne Moore's reaction of, you know, this is an insult. You're implying that I can't provide for my son, and I'm not going to accept this money on his behalf. I think she should have taken the scholarship money just as a dramatic yeah. element. I think it's a huge missed opportunity in the movie to see after Evan reveals what happens whether he's going to unwind this gift. Um, you know, and how exactly if the family's going to still pay, you know, the over hundred thousand dollars for this kid who lied to them, or if they're going to withdraw it and whether that could go to litigation, I think that could be just an incredible, I mean, that should have been the movie. Have have all (laughs) forget, forget starting, forget starting after the dinner, start (laughs) start, after that point. Start in media res with a gavel coming down. (laughs) <laughs> and have every all the exposition delivered through the opening statements. You forget that this. that would be a consequence, which is not allowed to happen <laughs> in this movie. I do think the courtroom version should still be a musical. And like, 
I find Pasek and Paul pretty boring. I think all of their songs sound exactly the same, but I would like to see them do a courtroom musical. I do want to point out that I think Mark is absolutely right, that the real reason, like, her accepting or her declining the award does make sense, but it's also just perfect for the plot so that it's not too messy and that what really happens is just, you know, emotional. And Evan has to figure out this problem for himself rather than, no, Evan does have real world consequences he'll have to deal with that aren't really just in point. his head. So, so point four, I guess speaking of, is the confession. I never had this kind of thing before. I never had that perfect girl who somehow could see the good part of me. I never had a dad who stuck it out. No corny jokes or baseball gloves. No mom who just was there cause mom was all that she had to be. That's not a worthy explanation. So, as Will mentioned, uh, Amanda Sedberg's character, who is the class president, publishes, I guess to give a little context, Connor's family wrongly believes that he and Evan loved hanging out at this orchard, which had been once a special place for their family. The orchard has fallen on hard times. As a tribute to Connor, Amanda Stenberg and the Connor Project, the student group, decide to try to raise $100,000 to, I guess, rebuild and reopen this orchard. The money is not there. It's, there's only about $75,000 out of the 100000 Okay, here's the thing. Here's what I don't get. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Tim. So they're like, at 75, she's like, there's only two days left. Like, Evan, why aren't you showing up to our meetings? I don't know what they're going to do with these meetings to raise $25,000, but why aren't you showing up to our meetings? We've only got two days left. Am I crazy, or is that an arbitrary deadline? Like, who decided it needed to be by this date? Yeah. That's what orchard, I don't get. Did the orchard landowner say if he doesn't get a hundred thousand dollars on his desk by this day it's off that actually I'm like might be a kickstarter could you not thing? extend it by a week yeah i it might be i actually don't know how kickstarter works i know there's at least one crowdfunding option where every pledge is contingent on the goal being met so that 75 yes, that thousand dollars would evaporate if it's not met in forty eight thousand. Because, you know, my $100 or $1 or whatever it is, is contingent on all 100000 being met. So they may be facing right, an actual that is true. deadline. I'll give you that. Yeah, I'm sorry. We, we got to give. It feels very <laughs> silly in the movie. And we don't know how. It might have been, you know, three months. You know, you'd think You Will Be Found might have led to the 100000 if it really was saving lives. But then again, it's an orchard. So. Yeah. And also, I'm just like, at that point, like, somebody from the local news will cover that. Like, you can get yourself on, like the five o'clock news and like some old people will donate money. There are other things you can do besides publishing a suicide note on Instagram. Also, you know, now that we're talking about this, this is an apple orchard, right? This is supposed, it's not like they're building a, you know, like an apple orchard is a business. It can turn a profit. You would think that the $75,000 would be enough to at least create something, maybe get a small business loan in there. And then be able to at a you know, working apple orchard. All the trees are still there growing apples. It's not like it went out of business and they sold off the trees. It's all just there. It looks beautiful. Like certainly yeah. it will, you know, it will attract a huge crowd in September, October. 
Like, there's no reason that 25000 if you have $75,000... You don't even have to pay that many people to work there. White people <laughs> will pay you to pick the apples. So there's that problem with it. We will concede that the uh, the, the deadline does, in, does exist. But uh, Amanda Stenberg starts to piece together that Evan's story might not be totally truthful because his story of what happened, of him falling and breaking his arm and Connor being there... Evan claims it happened in June. Evan didn't have a cast until September. So as proof that Connor really was Evan's friend, Evan shows, I feel like her name's Elena, the suicide note uh, or the fake suicide note that Evan wrote to himself. Evan claims that it was Connor's suicide note and that this is proof that he and Connor really were friends because he says, if we weren't friends, why would he write me this note? And then he's like, don't show it to anybody. Instead of just showing her this note on his phone, he emails her the note. From his phone. He pulled it up on his phone, and instead of just, like, sliding it over to her, he sent her an email. So she now has this on her phone as a desperate move to meet the dead. She chooses to publish this note on Instagram. At this point, public opinion swings heavily from in favor of the project and Connor and his family and Hope to heavily against Connor's family. They start receiving angry letters, angry emails. I think they get some death threats. Yeah, because the whole angle is like, wow, this like rich family like doesn't give a crap about their kid, which is like a classically internet. Oh, it perfectly tracks what the internet would do. That is one of the most accurate things in the movie. And Mark, I know you saw the stage show. Like, I feel like at the time it was premiering, one of the buzzy things about this show was that it was one of the first musicals to like effectively deploy internet kind of stuff. Yeah, it was very much into projections and like would project all the tweets and everything behind it. They clearly understood the internet. I will give that to them. Like they have a pretty good grasp. And I mean, even in this movie, it still feels kind of like the internet in 2015, but they did understand the internet back in 2015. Right, but like this movie does, even if it's like a couple years old, it does not have the clumsiness with which many things engage with the internet. Yes, that is true. But it also helps that they're both only 36, the songwriters. Sure. So when they wrote it, they would have been late 20s, so they were probably on the internet. I, I have to say, I didn't totally buy that the note really changed that much. Like the facts on the ground to the general public before and after the publication of the note did not seem very different to me. The publication of the note, it was the fact that the note was written to Evan Hansen, which the public didn't know, and that he didn't write the note to his parents, and also that it was tied to them asking for more money because they're rich. Yeah, the other thing was, I guess I didn't, it seemed, I guess this is part of like the internet doesn't understand that the family and the project are really two different things and that the family's not asking for money it's really some students who are trying to put it together but it does make but sense but you could see how people, people would not wouldn't really, receive it that way yeah, care to do that yeah. that's fair that's fair so this leads to plot point four another family gathering uh, of sorts evan comes over to the murphy household and now i'm wondering if i did this out of order but before confessing to anyone else goes over to the the family and confesses that he actually never knew connor oh no no this is afterward so this is in the midst of all the, yeah, the turmoil created by the publication of the note. Evan goes over. It's like that right. night. Uh, the you know mm-hmm. the family's already stressing out. You know they started receiving death threats. They're very stressed, and Evan comes in and says that 
he, he's going to fix the problem and it, it's his responsibility he created this mess because he wrote that note. Obviously, the, the family is even more distressed by this note and they don't really have a conversation about it with Evan. They really just ask him to leave. But his confession comes in the form of a song called Words Fail, where he apologizes, but with every word of apology, you know, essentially excuses his behavior by saying that he never had the family he deserved to have. Uh, except for when he came into this family's life. Yeah, Evan hates his mom. And this is the issue where, like, even if the movie holds him to greater account than the play does somehow, like, even at this point, it's still giving him a million excuses. And it's not that the show is giving him excuses, but he's giving himself excuses, which is arguably worse. You know, he's, he's clearly learned nothing if Evan Hansen thinks to himself and understands what would be going on in his head to create that behavior, then that's one thing. But to, in your apology to the family, say that. And like, this is what was going through my head. And, you know, this is what I, uh, I actually just wanted a family. That's, that's not what they want to hear right now. You know, in this moment, you know, just an, I'm sorry, I'm going to apologize. You know, we'll talk about this later is probably the better thing to say. So he and Zoe don't really get any closure. Zoe really runs out of the room. And I think that night, Evan posts an apology online on Instagram. And it's quickly viewed by the student body and people beyond the student body. God. And again, you know, we've talked about Ben Platt's age. I think, you know, there's this is probably the scene where really a younger actor was necessary. Right. I think you can, like, we're not going to get past, like, the fact that the movie can't really reckon with all this, but I think you can sell the decisions better if we are really seeing how young this character is. The whole movie just depends on, like, he is a kid. He's a kid. But nope, he is actually an adult. So, point five, sometime later, Evan Hansen is hanging out at the Apple Orchard, and Zoe Murphy shows up there in a gigantic truck. Oh my gosh, it is huge! (laughs) Why is she only in the largest cars? She's a small lady. It is a comically large truck. And she gets out of the truck. Uh, They've arranged to meet there. And Zoe wanted Evan to see the apple orchard because she feared that he might never see it otherwise. Uh, Might never bring himself. Like never actually visit it. I've been drifting. I've been dreaming. I would land upon the shore to a haven. They are no longer dating, clearly. Uh, they probably have not had really a long... Co- Obviously, they texted to, you know, arrange this meeting, but apparently have not really, you know, talked since. The movie doesn't show it, but I suppose we can assume, because we don't see it, that Evan did not try to contact Zoe after the uh, the confession. Seemingly his one smart move. And, you know, they just have a brief conversation. They're clearly never going to see each other again, or maybe, but it doesn't seem like they'll ever see each other again. And Zoe says the line, I wish I could have met you now, after all this. And then... She uh, she gets in her giant truck and drives away, and we do not see her again. 
probably crushes a few smaller <laughs> trucks on the way home. <laughs> Monster trucks. Driving Grave Digger home all the way back to the Murphy household. Here's the thing. I would watch a Caitlin Deaver monster truck movie. That sounds I awesome. would love to see Caitlin Deaver drive some monster trucks. This sounds awesome. I would even watch a Caitlin Deaver movie that was a sequel to monster trucks. Or watch her watch uh what's the movie where they're piloting the cities? Yeah, oh, Mortal she- Engines? I would <gasps> Mark, I want you to know that I was at Best Buy like two weeks ago and there is currently a 4K steelbook of Mortal Engines on the market. And I haven't bought it, but I feel like it's more accurate to say I haven't bought it yet. I would love a sequel to Mortal Engines where Caitlin Deaver is the Hugo Weaving role. Right, yeah, it should be Caitlin Deaver versus whoever the Mortal Engines lady is. And she's Zoe Murphy. <laughs> so the, the apocalypse happens immediately after this. Municipal Darwinism develops within right. three she's saying, years. When she tells Evan Hansen, you might not see this again, it's not because he might never bring himself to visit. It's because the apocalypse is coming. Okay, so here's where we need to ask, like, what city is Caitlin Deaver's starting point? So the movie is set in Maryland. I know when we see him mail out stuff late in the movie, Amanda Stenberg's address is in Bethesda. So, like... Does she start off? But the apple orchard is clearly somewhere more rural Um, than Bethesda. Larry is an Orioles fan. Like maybe she's in Baltimore. There's pretty rural areas, pretty close. I think there's a lot to unpack here. uh, Bethesda. I feel like the obvious answer is Baltimore, DC. I I'd like to think that it's Frederick, or uh, imagine Gaithersburg. (laughs) Her capital of the Gaithersburg city (laughs) is the Rio. Uh, you know what? That's an 18-screen theater, so I would not be mad about it. <laughs> of course, like the three of us, Larry is also a Georgetown graduate. Georgetown Law, though. Yeah. All right. So the movie ends. Three years later, the apocalypse happens. Caitlin Deaver takes over a city. And Mortal Engines 2 coming soon. <laughs> I so Can I t- after watching... I just... Now that yes. we're talking about this... I sometimes I like to think about what would be one of the best movies to have the men in black ending where we zoom out of Earth and it turns out this is all happening in like a small marble where two crab creatures are playing with each other. This might be up there for that. <laughs> no, I want it to be like zoom out and it's like a puppet show. <laughs> like at the end, like a, like a camera is like on a still of Ben Platt staring at the window <laughs> and the camera then like whips around and like we're watching some children in a library sitting there with a weird look on their face. <laughs> okay so do you find the romance between evan and zoe believable uh if i'm going first i have to say absolutely not i think there's there's a way that you can make the broad strokes of this very very believable that you know the sister of the deceased person finds comfort in who she perceives to be the best friend but this Evan Hansen and this Zoe Murphy, I absolutely cannot see what she would possibly see in him. I don't know what they like about each other. Like, Mark made a really good point about, like, how would he have that much of an idea of her? And we we see so little of them together. What we do see is montage. They both love Ferris wheels. So if you had to rate this on our 10-point scale, with one being the least and 10 the most believable, two. Tim, where would you rate it? Easy two. Will? Um... Yeah, I think Tim's right. It's a two. Yeah, I think it's a two. Evan is just, there's no redeemable quality to him. He's also just so unsettling. He's so unsettling. 
do you think I feel like we uh made our feelings pretty clear on one of these. Do you think Evan and Zoe are dateable? I don't feel like I know enough about Zoe. Like broadly, I want to say yes, but this movie is so solidly from Evan's perspective to the point that like they cut the show's opening number because he doesn't sing it. And Spassky was like, we got to start with Evan. Like I only see Zoe through him and he doesn't show me that much about Zoe. This movie is just so much about Evan that they cut some of the musical's best moments. There's a moment where the moms sing a song together. That's really nice, but Evan's not there. So it had to go away. Uh, I think, yeah, I think if anyone is undateable, Evan Hansen is undateable. I think Zoe is clearly a pretty good driver. Um, you know, seeing that she's going 80 <laughs> down this country road and slams on the brakes and manages to just make the red light. That was very impressive. So she may have a future in Formula One. So I think I'd want to hitch my uh, my wagon to that horse. Well, I mean, you do want to date the leader of a city if you're stuck in a municipal also Darwinism situation. Uh, speaking of, Tim, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Uh, boy, I guess I would probably date um, Julianne Moore. I think she's she's actually a real person. Uh, this is uh, Evan's, yeah. Evan's mother, Heidi. You know, she's a real person. She loves her son. You know, she misses some Taco Tuesdays, but does end up making other ones. She gives way too grounded of a performance for this movie. <laughs> right. It's again, it's the thing where like, I think basically everyone is good in this, except for Ben Platt. It's disconcerting how good Julianne Bohr is when acting alongside Ben Platt. And they do almost kiss that one time. His family friend seems fun. I thought you would I like can't Jared. remember his Jared. name. Jared. Jared. He seemed like a hoot and a half. <laughs> Evan and Zoe are not together, and nor should they be. So um, hang on. Can... I want to say, I got it. Um, I think I would go with Larry. Really? Yeah. I think he is a nice guy who's trying his best. He's a very good person, but I do not think I would date him. But he, and I've never seen this in a movie before. There's a scene where his, his wife is trying to talk to him, and he just insists on watching uh, sports. <laughs> it is. <laughs> kind of a hilarious moment in how cliched it is. But yeah, I like him, like I said, as a guy who's trying his best. I also think I have a certain degree of connection just in that, like, you know, the three of us all met doing theater together in college, and Larry is exactly the kind of character I would have played. <laughs> Old, <laughs> yes. Older than the characters who get the most to do, doesn't really have an arc. If he's lucky, gets, like, a song, a song. to do something. You are not wrong there. Yes. So, as I said, Evan and Zoe are not together. Nope. Uh, should stay that way. And our last question doesn't really apply to this one. Yeah. Should this, you know, this movie's based on a musical. So, the question of whether it should become one isn't one. Um, while we're here, do either of you from across their work have a favorite Pasek and Paul, like, musical number or song or whatever? Uh, I think from this one, I mean, Waving Through a Window is such a banger. It is. You can't you can't knock it. And it opens a movie other than the uh the one thing of when he says I'm on the outside looking in when he's inside his house looking out <laughs> it the is street. Funny. I think other than that it's great. I was on board through the song and then I think about 2 minutes afterward it lost me. It's the song itself is filmed well too. Yeah, I I think Spassky does a pretty good job until that you will be found breaking point. My fiance listens to that song a lot because apparently 
Pasek and Paul are really big in the running community because all their songs sound the same and are a good pace for running <laughs> to the point that for the U.S. Olympic trials, they like bought the rights to the Greatest Showman soundtrack, the U.S. Olympic Committee, <laughs> to like oh just god. play at the trials. Oh my god. Um, yeah, I think that's my favorite one. I've looked at their work and um, not much of it appeals to me. I think for me, it is still Another Day of Sun, like the opening number of La La Land. Oh, that is a good one. And a lot of that is how Damien Chazelle shoots that. But, like, that's such an electric moment. And, like, I like La La Land fine, but its biggest problem is that it can never live up to the promise of that sequence. Yeah, it starts out way too strong. (laughs) All right, I think that is about it for Dear Evan Hansen. I never want to watch or think about this movie again. (laughs) Okay, well, next week we will also be looking at people who might be teens. It's unclear as we look at the romance of the classic slasher film, Friday the 13th. We're continuing with this week's horror theme in honor of the month of October. I like that in October, we're getting steadily more horrific from like Something Wild, which is a comedy that turns creepy, Dear Evan Hansen, that has this like unsettling quality. Then we go full slasher with Friday the 13th. And then with Scary Movie at the end of the month, we have to like think in horror about the culture in which we were raised. Sure. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Tim. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice <laughs> we got from this movie? Uh, if the reason your significant other fell in love with you is because they wrongly believe that you were best friends with their dead sibling about it, then take off that guilty feeling and keep up the lie because if you pull away the curtain, there's no coming back. How is that advice? I love the idea that that presupposes this is a circumstance people get into. Hey, you never know what'll happen. Uh, My advice is... If you can't finish the sentence, I like you because (laughs) the relationship will probably not work out. I'm going to say, no matter what your age gap looks like, you shouldn't make out with your mom. And I was proud that (laughs) Evan Hansen figured that out at the last minute. Oh, God. Anyway, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay and horrified. (laughs) And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Get me.